Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me. My name is Kunji Ikeda, and I am honored to bring you some stories from the stage from some Japanese Canadian performance artists across Canada. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Denise Fujiwara, who has made a lifelong study into contemporary dance and the Japanese dance theater form of Buto. We will be hearing about how Denise practiced under a master of Buto, how she lives dance, and how she had a hand in shifting unfair practices at the Canada Council for the Arts and making the rigorous grant process more fair for artists like myself. So I invite you to come on back to the Nikkei Theatre within the mind, to settle in, take a seat, and enjoy. And if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And lights up. My name is Denise Hanayo Fujiwara, and these are my stories from the stage. You've arrived at the appointed time at the appointed address, which strangely appears to be a solid wall. You're curious. It's made of heavy stones and moss, and it has a rough beauty to it. On closer examination, you see that it has cracks in it, and one reveals itself to be just large enough for your body to squeeze through if you adjust your breathing. You pass through this gate and find that you are on a path. The path sparkles from a recent rain shower. You arrive at a small house. A door slides open just as you arrive and as you cross the threshold. A warm glow catches your eye and draws you into a room that seems larger than the house itself. Two figures bow and welcome you with French sweets and Indian teas and bid you to sit and join them in conversation about dance and life. Wow, what a beautiful setting for this conversation. So it, <laughs> in this beautiful, impossible, poetic room, uh, Denise Fujiwara, uh, who are you and, and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Denise Hanayo Fujiwara. I am Sansei. My grandfather on my Fujiwara side and my great-grandfather and grandfather on my Toyota side settled in Vancouver and Vancouver Island respectively in the early 1900s. My parents met while incarcerated at the internment camp at Slocan. I was born in Toronto and grew up there. I was born 10 years after World War II ended. So being Japanese or being of Japanese ancestry was not very popular then. We were the enemy and people let us know that in subtle and obvious ways. For survival, the unspoken directive for our families was to assimilate into the dominant culture. So it was very confusing for me as a young person, and I'm sure you'll hear this again and again in your interviews, um, because we were trying to shed our Japanese-ness 
but nobody would let us do that and nor would they let us be Canadian. So it was an interesting, or it has been an interesting and rich journey integrating my Japanese heritage with my Canadian upbringing. That story is so similar to my father's. Uh, he was born, I think, just a couple of years before you. And in a similar way that it wouldn't have happened if not for the internment. Mm -hmm. And and that feeling of, of wanting to assimilate as thoroughly as possible is really one that, that resonated with me as I was growing up is these small moments of surprise of, of, of my heritage that I was Japanese. Mm -hmm. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm curious, how, how did that struggle manifest? How did that show up between wanting to assimilate and not being able to? Well, um, it, it was sort of weird because everyone you meet insists that you're Japanese. So I would say, they would say, where are you from? And I would say, from Toronto, I'm Canadian. And they would say, no, no, but where are you from? You know, where are you really from? And, you know, and so on and so on until you finally had to say uncle and say, you know, my, my heritage is Japanese mm. or I'm Japanese Canadian. <laughs> and, um, and then they'd let it go. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I would just say as a child, I would just say I'm Japanese. And I actually thought I was Japanese in my mind that, that was embedded into who I was and <clears throat> Um, it wasn't until I actually went to Japan that I realized that was completely wrong, that I, I should never have said that uh, because it was wrong. But um, it's what I was led to believe, that I was Japanese. And then... Sorry, yeah. they, they felt more comfortable putting you in that box and, and yes. until that was accepted. Yes. And yes, it, I was brainwashed into believing I was Japanese. <laughs> and then, I, you know, when you go to Japan, you realize just how not Japanese you are. What was the, I haven't been yet. What, what were oh. some of the, yeah, what were some of those interactions for you that were like, that really drove home that you're Japanese Canadian, which is well, it's very instant. different. It's instant mm. because, um, you know, most of us didn't go to Japanese language school. I had a, I was given a choice as a child on Saturdays, I had only a certain amount of time and I could either go to Japanese language school or I could go and train at the best gymnastic club in the country. And so I chose gymnastics. Mm. And, you know, regrettably, I never learned to speak Japanese. And my parents spoke Japanese at home, but mostly when they didn't want us to understand what they were talking about. <laughs> so, you know, so instantly, if you don't have the language, you you know, you really don't have the foundation for being a part of Japanese culture. Right. And, and so tell me about this. Uh, that's such an interesting intersection of culture or art, because th that was your first step into this artistic world, was it not? The, uh, the choice between culture or, art, um, culture or sport. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Or so, yeah. being uh, Japanese and Canadian. <laughs> In a way, I mean, that's very poetically rich. Yeah, I chose, um, I chose Canadian. Well, it was, you know, of course, for a child, it was the most wonderful opportunity. And I loved gymnastics. And we were very poor. And 
I realized that if I trained really hard in this club, that I would get to travel the world. Mm. And uh, so that seemed much more attractive than, you know, being in a Japanese language school as a child. <laughs> For sure. And, and so tell me a bit about your uh, gymnastic career and then, and then how it transitioned into the dance world. Was there, was there a direct transition there? Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's a, a line there. I, I trained in this gymnastic club. Um, it was the Scarborough Winstonettes. And I, until I was 16. And then I busted up my knee. Hmm. But I got some experimental surgery after a couple of years. Hmm. And it was good enough that I could divert into rhythmic gymnastics. Hmm. And so I did get to travel extensively. And I competed for Canada in two world championships. Wow. So that was a wonderful um, experience for me. The gymnastics really gave me a great foundation for my dance career. In the early 70s, my mother uh, started performing in a modern dance company in Toronto, which was kind of crazy because she was 40 years old at that point, in her 40s. And, um, but she, she's a pretty remarkable person. That's so fantastic. she inculcated me into the world of modern dance. Um, but I continued to go and see dance concerts on my own. And um, I saw Judy Jarvis perform her 92nd solo flight. And I was, I was struck by how one could use one's trained body to go beyond the narrow goal of perfection, which is what I was striving for as a gymnast, and that you could use your body to create art and have a voice and embody meaning through movement and dance. Uh, so at that point, I decided to um, pursue dance as a, as a career, and I, I uh, went to study dance at York University, and the rest is history. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, shift between almost the the perfectionism of, of gymnastics and, and that there is a right place and a right time. Yeah. What is the, if that's kind of the driving force that will score you points. Yeah. It's interesting to, to juxtapose that with, with contemporary dance. Yes, I was really struck by the possibilities of dance. Um, I was exhausted at the, uh, towards the end of my athletic career. And I, I thought, you know, about how all of this energy and all of this determination I'm putting into perfecting my form. And for what? For a medal? For um, a competition? For, uh, it doesn't do anything for the world. Mm. But here through dance, I could say something about life, about humanity, about um, something with meaning. So I thought that that was a better place to put my energy. Hmm. I wonder if, is there anything that you've seen in the, the cultural cross-section of uh, being Japanese Canadian? And I suppose the, the gumption that you might need to, to pursue a life in the arts? I, I think that my, you know, the values of my parents were, we have that kind of Japanese 
nose to the grindstone, just keep your head down and work really hard. And um, they taught us that. And when I told them I wanted to be a dancer, my father was a little dismayed, hmm. but really they, they let us pursue our dreams. Hmm. Something I, I kept hearing early on is uh, we needed to work twice as hard to get half as far. Uh, and that was a bit less so in in my generation growing up in like the 90s Uh, however that was definitely kind of the work ethic that was instilled in my dad and and Mm -hmm. I really saw that and felt that Mm -hmm. that yeah put your head down and work (laughs) and don't expect too much really Um, no you know when you go into dance you really shouldn't expect fame or fortune (laughs) you do it for the love of it and they let me pursue my love. And, you know, really it was my mother's fault because she, she was my first dance teacher. She herself loved dance and pursued it all her life. So I guess it was inevitable that at least one of us would end up there. <laughs> and lucky you. <laughs> yeah, or crazy me. <laughs> So on this artistic journey through, through dance and, and finding your voice through, through the body, uh, you have, uh, you've come to Bhutto. Yes. Can you tell me about how that, how that weaved its way into your practice and, and what's that, what that's given you? Um, so, yes, I encountered Bhutto. So for your listeners, uh, what is Bhutto? It's a, it's a postmodern form of Japanese dance theater. And the founders of this practice and form were Tatsumi Hijikata and Kazuo Ono. It's a kind of a surreal form of, of dance theater that is particularly Japanese. It's a form that values the inner life of the dance and the, and the performer. It's transformational. It's, um, it involves the skillful um, embodiment of time and space authenticity stuff like that and it doesn't value conventional ideas uh that well things that we value in in the west like technique or virtuosic performance Mm. Uh, so again that's kind of hinting at uh that decision to to move away from gymnastics to move away from that flourishing uh uh perfection Mm-hmm. in order yeah. to find this this internally alive like the, the amount of work that goes on inside is phenomenal and and it doesn't always it doesn't always read in the same way because it really requires a lot of uh investment from from everyone within the room yes uh Buteau is is so difficult to do i i often think it's it's rather like ballet in terms of its difficulty you know, with ballet, when you see a, a ballet concert, you want to see really, really good ballet because mm-hmm. pretty good ballet is sort of horrible. <laughs> and it's the same thing with Bouteau. You know, it's very difficult uh, to do it well. Mm. And uh, so if you're lucky enough to see an excellent performer uh, do uh, wonderful choreography, you, you will see Bouteau then but mm. it can be invisible. <laughs> That's so interesting. So I had seen, you know, um, Buteau 
in the past and it intrigued me um, but I wasn't really interested in practicing it until I saw a performance by a woman named Natsu Nakajima. She was one of the first women to practice Buto, and she, she was a protege of the two founders, both founders, Kazuo Ono and Hijikata. And I found her work just riveting. It was complex and sophisticated, and it was transformative. It was beautifully imagistic and it was saturated with meaning. Mm. And when I saw that work, I felt like I had found my teacher. So I wrote to her and I asked if I could study with her or if she would teach me a, um, a piece of her repertoire, but she wasn't interested and she turned me down. <laughs> oh, the so, life of an artist. <laughs> <laughs> turned down. <laughs> But then, you know, circumstances changed and, um, she, and nine years after that time that I asked her if I could work with her, she uh, said yes. Oh. And she agreed to create a solo for me. And she brought me into the world of Butoh. I, You know, I really wanted to work with Natsu because I knew that she could take me to uh, another level of artistry. And... I decided that if I couldn't learn what she was teaching, that I would quit dance because the world did not need another mediocre dance artist. You know, for me to say that to myself, to, that I would quit dance, it felt like I was writing my own death warrant. So I, I set the stakes really high for myself yeah. in this work with Nazi. Wow, yeah. But... Uh, but I truly believe that, you know, if I couldn't do what she was teaching, then I really had no right to be a dance artist, you know. Uh, but I was determined to survive, and I worked really hard, and it was a really, really hard process. Did you, I'm just really fascinated by this idea of the world doesn't need another mediocre dance artist. Uh, <laughs> what was that self-identification like? Did, did you feel and how did you know, how did you attribute yourself to being a, a mediocre dance artist at that time? Well, I knew like what Natsu did with her uh, dance mm. was the kind of thing that I was striving for. It was all the things that I believed that dance could be and should be. And I didn't want to do anything less than that mm. as a dance artist. But the, the piece she made, the piece in about, in less than uh, six weeks. But I would say it took me about, you know, seven years to really learn how to perform it. Wow. To really that, you know, after seven years, I realized, oh, this is just the, the gateway to the piece. And that the piece, <laughs> you know, continued to, to give me uh, such um, an education. Um, throughout the time, the 12 years that I performed it. I just want to go back a little bit into this idea of there's a fascinating step in the artistic journey where you, you know what you want to do with your art, you, <laughs> but you can't quite do it yet. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that happens with every piece I make, wow. right? Yeah. You start Me the piece well. <laughs> And you hope that it will be something, but you don't really know how to make it into a work that speaks or, you know, 
something that takes off. There's this uh, alchemy mm. that has to come together to make a really good dance work. Absolutely. And, you know, the, and it seems the alchemy changes with each time, with each dance. <laughs> Yeah, different recipes, different uh, ingredients. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah different, different performers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's all different. It doesn't sound like it was a conscience, a conscious move towards a Japanese form. It was a move towards a form that called to you. And could you speak about how that, there must be something of, of the way it was developed and the DNA of the form that called to you that is based somewhat in the Japanese culture? Yes. Um, when I was young, my mother wanted me to do Japanese dance. And I rejected it. Hmm. And I told her that maybe I would do it when I was an old person, when I was 40. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it, it just so happened that, you know. It's prophetic. You know, I discovered Natsu in my 30s, but when we actually started working on the piece, I was 40. Wow. And yes, yeah, so perhaps it was um, my destiny, you know, to, to, to take this path at that time. To really learn a Japanese art, I think you have to enter um, the Japanese paradigm. Uh, all, all of the principles I had learned about dance um, in my earlier life were largely Eurocentric and really were diametrically opposed to the principles of, of Japanese dance and aesthetics. So, you know, even though I had these uh, decades of training, um, it was all suddenly useless. Hmm, wow. um, in, and nothing really prepared me uh, for working with Natsu except for maybe some of those Russian, really harsh Russian coaches, but she was harsher than them. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a pretty harsh education, or I should, maybe I should say a re-education because in working with her, I was suddenly a beginner again. And I had a, you know, a huge new learning curve. I find that so healthy to, to <laughs> have the permission to be a beginner again. Yes, it was, it was amazingly uh, rejuvenating, mm. but it was also at the same time, you know, it almost killed me. So, <laughs> so humbling. <laughs> yes, it was terribly humbling. Goodness. You spoke about the opposition of the, the Western culture and the Japanese paradigm. Can you speak a little bit about, I mean, what I might be missing from the Japanese paradigm that you've experienced? You know what? All Japanese arts really are saturated with Zen. Mm. And so in a way you have to understand the principles of Zen, which are just as quizzical and confounding for certainly for a Westerner to understand. You know, my immersion into Butoh was in a way also an immersion into Zen and Zen principles. And, you know, Natsu would give me instructions, but she would not give me any explanations. Hmm. So she would, you know, say, you have to have ma. And, uh, you know, well, what's ma? You know, it's a, it's a Japanese 
term for a particular way of understanding space-time, the relativity of space-time, and the way that one deals with space-time in Butoh and in Japanese theater. Well, I, I just had an overwhelming sense of where I am in the world. <laughs> just hearing that, my kinesthetic sense got a little heightened there. Yes. And so, you know, the literal translation for Ma, if you look it up in the dictionary, is uh, it's the space in between. Or if you're a musician, uh, it might be the silence in between. Hmm. Um, but if you're a dancer, it's, it has, you know, every, every art form manifests that term in a different way. Hmm. But in, in dance, Ma is very sophisticated. When, when Natsu was speaking about Ma, she was speaking about the ability of the performer to expand and contract time-space. Hmm. Yeah, I know. So when, you know, <laughs> when she gave me that um, instruction, I was uh, very distressed because I thought, you know, okay, now I'm going to have to get a degree in quantum <laughs> physics. You need to command the, <laughs> the, the time-space. And I really had to uh, just keep working in order to embody it, you know, but how could I embody it if I didn't understand it? Well, eventually I had an experience where, where things just cracked open and I, I had the experience just for a moment, but I, I recognized that that was the experience. Was this in, in the rehearsal hall? Yes, after she had gone back to Japan and I was rehearsing on my own. Once I experienced it, then I, then I was able to have that experience again, but more, you know, for a little bit longer and then a little bit longer. And then I could, I could create the, that experience instead of it just happening to me by accident. You know, that was the, an example of the mysteriousness of the whole process. Hmm. And the other, you know, very difficult thing is that in, in dance, your medium is your body and so it's it's very personal <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know yes. your failure is your the failure <laughs> of yourself you know one of the things that i had as a goal in in um, learning buto was my goal of um, settling questions about my identity but i was instantly confronted with the idea that i you know that i would have to give up my idea of self itself. Natsu said, you know, that her um, master Hijikata said that if you want to do buto, the first thing you must do is kill the self. Wow. So like, yeah. <laughs> I was um, <laughs> drowning, you know, there were lots of times when I was drowning, uh, treading water and then drowning uh, through the process. Hmm. Now in, in your, in your, years of searching for the heart of this piece can you can you share what that what you found with our audience here <laughs> well um <laughs> you know one of the ways that i found that i i might get some insight into what natsu was um, asking me to do and what she expected me to do was by studying zen by reading mm. zen so that was very helpful because, you know, the idea of killing the self, uh, which seemed fairly extreme to me, and, and 
inscrutable to me. I, I gradually learned about through Zen. Hmm. So in Zen, you know, you can't, you can't actually kill the self. It's a bit of a dramatic expression, ex, ex, <laughs> you know, expression because, um, but you know, in Zen, they say you can't kill the self because there is no self. So that helped me sort of get my mind around what I was doing, but it was really the hours and hours of practice hmm. that um, enabled me to find my way into the peace. And, you know, I practiced mostly on my own, but I always felt like Natsuki was on my shoulder working instructions at me and telling me no 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 and wow. uh try again then and uh and every rehearsal i learned something um where something that she had said that i didn't understand would start to make sense and wow. so it was a very rich time now if i could if i could shift gears a little bit from this idea of losing the self to the very selfless work that that you took on in, in this navigation with the Canada Council. Because oh. <laughs> it, it's very, it's selfless work. And it's, I really recognize, cha I mean, challenging systems in a way that, that are required to shift. It's so dense and difficult and takes a lot of the self in order to, to continue and to pursue it. Can you speak a bit about, I mean, I've heard your story as a bit of a lore uh, in the dance world, in, in the arts world. Can you give us that, what happened in a nutshell? Sure. Well, I'm not sure how nutshelly it would be. But, <laughs> well, we got you know, to. <laughs> in a way, it, was, um, it wasn't selfless. In a way, it was to save ourselves that we took the Canada Council to court. This was a company that um, a bunch of us formed in the late 70s and it ran until the late 80s uh, until the point where the Canada Council cut us off. The company was called Toronto Independent Dance Enterprise or TIDE and we had funding for eight years from the Canada Council previous to this sharp cutoff. It was one of the more traumatic experiences of my life it was a huge blow and it was a kind of a public humiliation to be the artistic director of a company that's been cut off by the Canada Council. And what I noticed is that other dance companies, other artistic directors of dance companies who'd been cut off, just disappeared. I mean, the, the blow was too great for, for most people to sustain. You know, they, the, the artistic directors who'd been cut off, they went away and they never came back to dance. They never mm -hmm. choreographed again. They never you know, they didn't start a new company. They, mm. they just disappeared. And I, I realized that this cutoff was actually the end of my career, uh, that I was going to be a dead choreographer. Uh, I, I've been warned so many times throughout my career of try not to tie your personal worth to the work that you're doing. Yes. Which, which is a beautiful theory, but so difficult in our industry. Yes, because if you have a company that's, you know, basically been operating and suddenly very publicly gets just cut loose, hmm. um, it's, it's such a publicly acknowledged humiliation hmm. that I think it's very hard to come back from it. Oh, there's the loser, Fujiwara, you know. Oh, goodness. Couldn't keep her <laughs> company together. But as it turned out, 
a couple of us were married to lawyers. Hmm. So we went home and we told the lawyers what had happened. And they, they decided that we had actually a case that it was, you know, possible that the council had violated our rights by making a decision to cut the company's funding without warning. And they explained to us that, you know, although we had a case that um, we had maybe a 50-50 chance of winning. So we weighed our options. We found a lawyer who would represent us pro bono and hmm. we proceeded in, in making the lawsuit. It was a really painful process for us as artists. Tamla Sobel and I worked on the case. It hurt our hearts and spirits every day that, uh, of that year that it took to prepare to mm. go to court. But, you know, in a way we were fighting for our lives. Wow. Because um, what I figured out, you know, in the process of doing this was that it, it did give us a chance to stand up and speak, to have a voice, um, and that I didn't have to go down in humiliation. I could go down fighting, you know? Yeah. And so that's, that's what we did. Tama also uh, continued her, uh, her dance career after the lawsuit. It was, it was transformational for me. It was another kind of a death experience, near death experience. <laughs> Even though we lost the case, we learned a lot. We did challenge the council in a way that was positive. We lost the war. Uh, we lost the battle, but we won the war. That's how how we might say it. Yeah, there were there were changes installed, like almost directly in reference to to this case, weren't there? Yes. Like yes. After the, the case was decided, the council went into meetings and they came out of the meetings with uh, some major changes in procedure and policy. And they actually changed all of the things that we were critical of, all wow. of the points we were critical of in the court case, except for one. And that, that one thing that they did not change was we asked for the ability to uh, appeal our mm. case, and they have never allowed appeals. What were some of the things that did get shifted? When we started out, the whole process was shrouded in secrecy. Mm. Eventually, we learned that funding decisions were, were decided by the officers themselves. The officers got artistic assessments from peers, but they were made by secret assessors, and they were kept secret from the artists. And we only discovered what was in the assessments by applying to the Office of Access to Information. Hmm. They came to us heavily redacted, and we wondered why they were so heavily redacted. And then eventually we got less redacted versions. Hmm. And in the less redacted versions, we learned that there were many favorable assessments for the company and that the decision wasn't black and white. And so we argued that we were judged unfairly and that we should be granted an opportunity to, to make our case Wow. against them. So, so now the, the whole arm's length jury that is transparent, all those new, I mean, new, Yes. that's, that's what I've grown up with. That's, that's in direct right. response. So that was because of that court case, because wow. um, when, when we uh, went to court, some of the offices were peer assessed, but dance mm. uh, among some others were not. All decisions, they decide, the council declared that all decisions for funding in all the disciplines would be peer reviewed. 
mm. and, and decided on a process of scoring and that, art, that artistic assessments would be accessible to the artists concerned mm -hmm. and that the small coterie of old assessors was let go because you would notice that it's the same, it was the same jury all the time for those auditions. So if you, you know, if they didn't like you the first time, there's not much chance <laughs> they're going to like you after that. For sure. And uh, there was a policy of, you know, that they couldn't reuse the same assessors over and over again. Mm. What also happened was that the quality of, of written assessments improved because, of course, the artists were going to be able to read them and could challenge the assessor. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard this enough, uh, but thank you. Nobody's like, thanked me, actually. <laughs> oh my goodness, Denise! Thank you so much. Like, hearing you speak about the years worth of daily heartache, this is what I meant by by the idea of that selflessness of it. Is that it's it's so difficult to try and shift some of these systems to try and to to make sustained change for others, and. Yeah. And, and this is such a beautiful example of an, uh, you know, artists doing that, taking on that work and, and taking on that heartache. And so thank you. That's, I've, you know, in a way, uh, I think we were fortunate. We found ourselves in a situation where we actually had a case that we could argue in the courts. Hmm. I think that if you don't have something that's so, uh, you know, cut and dried that you could take it to court, it, it's more difficult. What, what advice would you give other artists who are trying to change the system that we live in? Well, from my experience, learn what your rights are, do the research, stand up for your rights, communicate skillfully. And, you know, support people and organizations who are challenging unfair practices. Um, nobody stood up with us when we took the Canada Council to court. Um, it was a very lonely pursuit. And I think that um, it doesn't have to be. Mm. So support people and organizations who are challenging unfair practices. Mm -hmm. But that said, be mindful of the way that you support these causes support them in respectful ways, do your own research, and uh, deal in facts. Hmm. Resist the impulse to generalize, resist the impulse to blame and shame, and always strive, I'm going to say it again, to communicate skillfully. That's beautiful, thank you. Uh, <laughs> as you're, you're uh, pouring out a little bit of, of wisdom tea for us here, um, <laughs> uh, in that same vein, what kind of advice would you give the next generation of artists? <laughs> That's huge. Uh, <laughs> I would say be discerning. Uh, you don't have a lot of time on earth and even less time if you're a dancer. You know, <laughs> dancers' lives can be sort of counted in dog years. Oh, goodness. Our lives are very short. Um, so... From my experience, I say, look for wise masters. Mm. If you're fortunate, one might take you on. Mm. They can help you discover gates that you didn't know existed. And I suppose the other thing is that failure can be a gift too. I've 
had some uh, catastrophes in my life. You know, now in looking back, I see that the catastrophes have been in a way wonderful things for my life. And in- incredible how, uh, like the stakes that have been been there within your, your journey. The idea of quitting if y- you couldn't get the, the Bhutto work. The idea of being being shamed and and leaving the dance world all these ideas seem to have such i mean beautiful but difficult stakes involved with them in a way uh one of the things i've learned from buteau is about high stakes in in buteau we're always uh we're always interested in dying it's a wonderful experience uh to practice that it's refreshing. It's, it, it makes you value life. And, um, you know, in the Zen training, you're taught to ponder, consider your death every day. It makes you live better. You know, in a way, these seemed like life and death experiences for me. And th- but they made me live harder. They made wow. me live more. And so I was very grateful for that. That's beautiful. I really love that. In, in your multiple deaths, and, and as, you, <laughs> as you go on living quite hard, uh, is there anything in the artistic world that you know you got to get to, or things that a younger version of you really wanted to tackle that, that haven't been? Huh, that's a hard one. I really don't know what's next for me, and not knowing is most intimate. That's a Zen koan. In fact, we never know anything. We can't really know anything except for the present moment. If you are in the present moment, and if you are able to keep yourself open and aware, when the opportunities come, you'll see them. And life will unfold. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that your work is filled with you know, these ideas of Bhutto and, and Zen koans. And I wonder, how has your experience differed as a Japanese-Canadian in this artistic journey? A couple of things. Hmm. Um, I, I'll venture to say that one of the values of Western contemporary art is that it values originality. In order to claim originality, artists distance themselves from their teachers and, and in a way they cover their tracks hmm. because if your work is like your teacher's, then your work is derivative. But in Bhutto, I learned that if one is privileged to be taken on by a master teacher, that you cherish that lineage. Mm. My teachers cherished their mentors and protected their knowledge and passed it on carefully and respectfully. Mm. And, you know, the solos they created for me even had bits of their master's choreography embedded in, in them. So... That was a beautiful thing. Another experience that I had is that um, initially I couldn't get funding to pursue Bhutto. Mm. Um, It didn't fit into either the contemporary dance or ballet categories that the council set up. And so um, my project to work with Natsu was rejected as ineligible. Fortunately for me, the National Association of Japanese Canadians had a fund and they allowed me to apply 
so I got to work with Natsu and my life changed. Wow. That honestly, that's something that I'm still hearing that, that cultural dances are, are still quite, we, we don't have the experts on the juries in, in order to, to recognize what certain cultural dances mean. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately in, in my case, um, after I was turned down by the OAC, uh, they changed the criteria. The dance office at the Ontario Arts Council changed their criteria the following year. So I think, wow. yeah. So that uh, Natsu and I might have had something to do with that too. It seems like the ripples that you have in this community are 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 thorough and are vast. And again, uh, I don't know that I I could possibly be the first, but. If I am, let, thank you. Thank you so much for this, for the work you've done to, to shift the, the artistic landscape in this country. And, and thank you for challenging systems that don't feel like they fit for everyone. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. That means a lot to me. And thank you for this opportunity to speak. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your openness and sharing and, um, and so thank you. Aren't we lucky to be Japanese Canadian? Yes, we are, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so? Yeah. Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, Stories from the Stage, is hosted by me, Kunji Ikeda. More information about my own artistic work can be found at cloudsway.ca. For more information on my guest, Denise Fujiwara, you can check out fujiwaradance.com. Our opening theme and additional music is by Onibana Taiko. Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me is co-produced and presented by the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. <laughs>